come to this sacred part of our time together where we look at the Scriptures, where you speak to your church as we read every word of Scripture. It is inspired, it is inerrant, it is sufficient, and as we looked at last week, it is absolutely authoritative for everything we need to live, lead a life of godliness for your praise and for our good. So, Lord, teach your people. Help us to honor you in our listening to the Spirit of God as he tutors us through Scripture, and even as we consider what this looks like in our lives of obedience and faithful practice, aid us there as well. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. We come to Titus chapter 3 this morning. If you want to take your Bibles and be turning there, one contemporary author and theologian of our day kind of captures the gist of what we're looking at this morning. You'll note, you might notice that on the front of your bulletin, I had a second uh, uh, article there from uh, Dr. Moeller. I don't usually use the same person two weeks in a row, but what a great cultural commentator to give sanity in what is used typically when you turn on the radio or news, there's a lot of insanity there, but uh, so thankful for people like that that speaks the truth to the issues of our day and our lives. But one other author and theologian of our day writes, the United States is now a pagan nation. After being blessed with some 150 years of strong Christian biblical influence, our country has been on the rapid decline, especially during the last half of the 20th century. Millions of Americans still attend church regularly. Many more consider themselves to be Christians. According to polls, most Americans claim to believe in God. But practical atheism and moral relativism have dominated our society for many decades. For the most part, the few vestiges of Christianity still reflected in our culture are weak and compromising. A growing number of those vestiges have become apostate or even cultic. Many observers have referred to this period in the United States and Western society in general as post-Christian. By any measure, it is certainly sub-Christian, although many parts of our culture still wear some sort of religious mask in reality, it is largely pagan. Through its leaders, its legislative bodies, and its courts, it has adopted not simply a non-Christian, but a distinctively anti-Christian stance and agenda. Anything and everything that is explicitly Christian and biblical has been swept away under such guises as separation of church and state, equal rights, and religious and moral tolerance. The many biblical tenets and standards that once were part of the fabric of our country and that provided the undeniable cultural benefits of morality are now gone. Whatever its form or practical benefits may have been, cultural Christianity is dead. Self-expression, moral freedom, materialism, and hedonism are the prevailing gods of our age. Those gods, as clearly pagan as any in the ancient Roman or Greek pantheons, have inevitably spawned the epidemic breakdown of families, illegitimate births, sexual evils of every sort, unequaled growth of drug addiction and crime, and wanton destruction, destruction of unborn babies. In the name of intellectual and scientific progress, godless philosophies have long dominated secular as well as much of private education. Not surprisingly, most of those who have grown up in this standardless society strongly resist any sort of controlled behavior. Consequently, we do not have enough laws to cover the rapidly increasing and more sophisticated forms of crime, nor do we have 
enough police to arrest lawbreakers, enough courts to try them, or enough prisons, prisons to incarcerate them. The spiritual revival of the 70s swept across campuses of many colleges and universities. Despite the excesses and distortions that Satan inevitably uses to try to frustrate the work of the Holy Spirit, many students on those campuses received Christ as Savior and Lord. Mass baptisms were conducted in rivers, lakes, and even oceans. Maybe some of you were a part of that. That same period of time witnessed the release of several new versions of the English Bible. Christian publishing, Christian broadcasting had remarkable growth and an undeniable wind of the Spirit was blowing. In many ways, those days caused evangelical Christians to rejoice. Understandably, many believers expected that movement to usher in a new day of blessing, maybe parallel to the restoration that we read about in Zechariah this morning. But the revival of the 70s soon turned into the debauchery of the 80s and 90s. Many government leaders, educators, celebrities, college students, and much of society in general became openly disparaging of biblical standards of morality and of Christianity as a whole. Laws were written, court decisions made, school standards from kindergarten through graduate level, were adopted that were avowedly contemptuous of religion in general and of biblical Christianity in particular. Evangelicals became as resentful of this secular trend as they had been encouraged by the spiritual revival that preceded it. Believers became alarmed that legislators, courts, administrations began to openly sanction deviant sexual behavior, especially homosexuality. They became sickened that in many, if not most, public school sex education courses, the only real dangers for teens who are sexually active are sexually transmitted diseases or unwanted pregnancy to say nothing about God's view of it. They're repulsed that criminals are being exonerated and innocent victims disregarded. Evangelicals are appalled that biblical standards of ethics are blatantly rejected and that vulgarity, profanity, and blasphemy not only have become condoned, but even admired. So in reaction to the rapid and pervasive escalation of immorality and ungodliness, believers have become both saddened and angered. Hostility among some of them has been intensified still further when they learn that their taxes are being used to fund ideas and practices only a few generations ago were condemned, even by most secularists. They fear for their children and even more for their grandchildren because of the kind of world into which they will be born, they will be educated, and they will have to live. Many well-meaning Christian leaders founded organizations to counteract anti-Christian influences and assaults. And attempted to fight fire with fire, as it were, Christian organizations, publishers, and broadcasters have sought to counter anti-Christian ideas and programs by using non-Christian tactics. They've decided it's time to stand up for their rights and have declared war on the prevailing non-Christian culture, especially the liberal national media. They become hostile to unbelievers, the very ones that God called them to love and to reach with the gospel of Christ. But neither the New Testament nor the example of the early church justifies such mentality. The cause of Christ cannot be protected or expanded by social intimidation any more than by governmental decree or military conquest. Ours is still a spiritual war. It's against human ideology and beliefs that are set up against God that can only be successfully conquered with the weapon of the Word of God as as was addressed in adult Sunday school. The only offensive weapon God has given His church is the Word of God. In his book, The Evangelical Pulpit, John Seale rightly says, and I quote, a politicized faith not only blurs our priorities, but weakens our loyalties. 
Our primary citizenship is not on earth, but in heaven. Though few evangelicals would deny this truth in theory, the language of our spiritual citizenship frequently gets wrapped in the red, white, and blue. Rather than acting as resident aliens of a heavenly kingdom, too often we sound and act like resident apologists for a Christian America. And unless we reject the false reliance on the illusion of Christian America, evangelicalism will continue to distort the gospel and thwart a genuine biblical identity. American evangelicalism is now covered by layers and layers of historically shaped attitudes that obscure our original biblical core, unquote. So as we turn to Titus 3 this morning, and many other New Testament uh, passages make clear, we must not get so engulfed in trying to force social behavior to conform to our standards that we become enemies of those that our Lord has commissioned us to win and to reach. When Christians become political, sinners become the enemy instead of the mission field. Involved in our culture, but not of our culture, nor using their tactics in fighting fire with fire, as I'd already alluded to. Scripture is clear that Christians are citizens of a different land. We're simply so, we simply sojourn here. We're in the world, but not of it. Many have a tendency even to create enclaves from which they emerge only to buy groceries or take piano lessons. But you cannot win a society that way, especially a community for Christ, if you're not engaging with her. Christians are to interact with their neighbors, their society, and the world at large. This creates a tension, and so Paul addresses, and he outlines behaviors and attitudes we believers are to maintain, and then gives a theological basis for the instructions. So this section of Titus 3, 1 through 8, treats of those relationships Christians have with the world. Would you... Follow along as I read for us in Titus 3, verse 1. Here was what Titus was to carry on in his faithful biblical ministry to the churches on Crete as he brought them in conformity with the Word of God. He says to Titus, Titus 3, 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Stop. Verses 1 through 2 will be the first point that we will look at this morning. And it is a reminder in our relationships, verses 1 and 2, a reminder in our relationships. And like he did in the previous chapter by giving all these relational commands to the older and the younger, so he'll expand our relational influence and remind them of what it is to look like, and then after in verses 1 and 2 doing that, the rest of the section, he will give the theological basis, the doctrinal duty that necessitates that. So let's continue reading in verse 3. For we all want... excuse. It'd help if I wasn't adding to the Word of God, right? When all the words dance on the page, it's hard to lead singing or to read Scripture, so let's, let's try this again. Titus 3.3, 3. for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared... He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in, in, in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. This ends 
the reading of God's inspired Word. So a reminder in relationships, verses 1 and 2. Speaking of reminder, you remember last week, if you weren't here, it's, it's on the website, you can access the teaching. Uh, we don't usually spend a whole sermon on one verse, but we spent last week looking at spiritual authority or even pastoral authority or the ministry of the Word, that as ministers of the gospel, we have nothing to say except the Word of God. So when the minister of the Word speaks He speaks with derived authority that when people bring us the Word of God, it speaks with its own veracity, it speaks with its own authority, that since it is from God and for God's glory, we simply obey it. It comes with its own inherent authority. Authority comes from the source. It is inspired, it is inerrant, it is sufficient, it is the authoritative Word of the living God. Therefore, Every faithful pastor, every minister of the Word is to preach the Word and be instant in season, out of season, as he would tell Timothy. They are to speak the Word, and what consists of a lot of pastoral ministry, Paul addresses to Titus here, and we find elsewhere in the New Testament, we remind people. Pastoral ministry is a ministry of reminder. Notice that this is the command from the Apostle Paul, present, active, imperative, called to remembrance, remind God's people. How often we gather and we study familiar topics and doctrines together. Never, uh, sometimes not necessarily learning a new tr- truth that we hadn't learned before, but a different aspect as we are edified and equipped on familiar passages that we've visited before. That's what we engage in in faithful ministry. This theme, New Testament theme of reminding is a rich one. Remember when Jesus was addressing His fearful disciples? He said, I'm going to go away. And I'm going to send you a helper. And some of the confidence he gave them of the helper that would come was that uh, part of his ministry is going to be a reminder ministry. He's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded you in John 14, 26. Peter, in his second epistle, expands upon this a little bit in Second Peter one twelve. He was just trying to be a, a faithful servant of the Most High God. And in Second Peter one twelve, uh, we looked at this expositional series months ago. He says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you, as he's addressing the scattered Jews, those that God had called to saving faith, I'm going to remind you of these things, even those... Uh, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I'm not going to tell you anything new. I'm going to remind you to rehearse gospel truths together. That's one of the beauties of that resource I'd mentioned that we gave our graduates this year, the gospel primer. It's not new truths. But it helps to remind you so that every day when you live of gospel sufficiency, gospel grace, and gospel forgiveness, and all the other gospel graces, that you're doing so because you're redeemed and it comes, the source is the gospel of Christ who has saved you from your sin and released you to serve Him. In Jude 5, he said, I desire to remind you Though you know it, and how often God has called us, especially when you're going through difficulties, as we uh, have looked at a couple of weeks about trials in James 1, when you come alongside somebody who's suffering and going through difficult times, what do we do? Do you preach a new truth to your brother or sister in Christ? Not necessarily. You just remind them of what they already know, to bring it to the surface, to dwell on it as your sufficiency. So much of pastoral ministry is one of reminder. Titus, remind them. 
Remind them. The them point, points back specifically to the various age groups uh, that had already been addressed in the Cretan church back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and generally to all believers. In essence, we never outgrow reminders. We never outgrow reminding to live of the fullness of gospel grace and transformation, being sanctified and hoping in God's authoritative truth. This reminder, Titus was to bring the believers, was, has, a, has a six-fold responsibility. What, what's he going to remind them of? What do we need to remind it of even on this Memorial Day? What's our responsibility? And so this reminder is set forth with five infinitives and one participle ongoing thing. It, it kind of outlines in verse 1 our, our duty to government. What do we owe the society around us rather than disengaging and being our own island in our church or in our home? What is our duty? First of all, in your reminder, Titus, Remind them, number one, to be subject, to be subject to rulers and authorities. We'd already looked at this, uh, uh, this doctrine of submission. Uh, we met with it in chapter 2, verses 5 and 9, about wives being submissive to husbands and slaves being submissive to masters. There's always going to be somebody higher up the chain. There's always going to be somebody that we report to. There's always role distinctions and responsibilities. Back in chapter 2, there were specific groups involved in this submission. Here he's making it clear, not just to a few, but to every, everyone that names the name of Christ, everyone that professes the name Christian. Is your life marked by submission. Submission. We live under submission. So how are you doing? This is only the first thing on the list. James uh, reminds us in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Yeah, there's time for preaching on that. Shake that bush for a little bit. But you know here, Paul's intent is, how are you in submission to the governmental authorities. This demands continual action to the church of God. This is the first demarcation, the contrast of the Christian citizen. They are not to be marked, you and I are not to be marked by rebellion or the rebellious that he, uh, he talked about back in Titus 1, verse number, uh, verse number 10. He said, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. We live around a lot of rebellious people. We live in a rebellious age. This is the nature for which Cretans were so infamous. Bunch of rebels. Let it not be said of those who are supposed to be submissive to their Lord are unsubmissive to the other authorities. Be subject to rulers and authorities. That latter word, authorities, is used by Paul in Romans 13. And uh, you know, Titus 3.1 is kind of a, a, the Reader's Digest edition of which Romans 13, 1 through, uh, 1 through 7, is a more uh, substantial section describing political rulers and entities. This passage needs to be read consistent with Romans 13 which is a more thorough commentary on what, what does a godly citizen look like. So insert in your notes here, cross-reference in your mind, we read Titus 3.1 in parallel with Romans 13.1-7. Second item on this reminder list. He says, don't just remind them that submission is absolutely crucial to the Christian, but number two, obedience. He kind of uh, fleshes it out a little bit. This too is written in the present, demanding continual lifestyle that is characterized by obedience. An interesting uh, 
for those of you that uh, point out any time that I uh, make grammatical errors and uh, hack up the King's English and whatnot, uh, I, here's a note for you. Uh, if you study this term obedient, very interesting, its roots are to listen or obey and ruler, indicating it's got special emphasis on obedience to, not just any obedience, but obedience to authority. So with Paul connecting it closely with that first infinitive when he says, make sure they are subject, that obedience is the subjection more clearly. We must obey the laws of man. We must be known as law keepers, not law breakers. You know, when, when our pagan society looks at us, they better not get the idea, oh, those are, those are the servants of the other king, capital K. So I guess we'll have to excuse them because they don't follow the laws of man. That's not an excuse, according to the apostle. We must obey the laws of man. To live in submission to them is to live in obedience to them and to live in obedience to God. The only exception where this term is used which might require disobedience is when there's a divine command. Uh, if you wanted to cross-reference in your notes here, Acts 5.29, where the same form of that word is used. You remember as... God's ambassadors were going about raising a ruckus in the Roman world. Acts 5, verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered them. Who? What happened? Back in verse 27. They stood before the council. The high priest questioning them, saying, We told you... Not to continue teaching in this name. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So the only leg to stand on that Peter had was your orders directly defy God. That is the only time our conscience can be solved that we're right with God and right with others because the only reason why we disobey the others is because it's an obedience to the Lord. It'd take a whole sermon or series of sermons to flesh out godly civil disobedience. So, we see that this is not a hard and fast absolute. When we're told, be subject and obey, it's not blind obedience. There might be coming a day very soon for us, Christian, where it will be disobedience to authorities over us to honor the Christ of the Bible as we stand up for biblical marriage and biblical sexuality and biblical morality. But if something's morally wrong, So when we disobey, we quietly do so with the, and face the consequences. But be very careful before you do. Otherwise, all the laws of man are included, whether it be traffic regulations or payment of taxes, whether we like it or not. A Christian citizen is also continuously characterized not just by submission and obedience. Notice the third thing on, on Titus's reminder list. He says, guys, make sure you remind them to be ready. Christian, are you ready? Have you girded yourself with readiness for every good deed? He'd already used this expression back in chapter 1, verse 16, in contrast. He says there are a lot of people that profess to know God. A lot of people in evangelicalism. A lot of people that claim to be Christians. A lot of people go to churches. A lot of people profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Their deeds do not validate their profession. There is not that readiness. So we must prepare for every good deed. 
instead of being worthless for any good deed. A believer is to stand in, in constant preparedness to under, undertake any and every good deed. I just referenced for you back in the first chapter, but you remember in the second chapter how this was used? Chapter 2, look with me at verse number 7. He's talking to the young men in the congregations. Urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. And he goes on with his list. Young men, are you ready for good deeds? Verse number 14. As he was just instructing the slaves to their masters, what was Titus to teach young women to be lovers of their children, to be lovers of their husbands? Older women were to be teaching them, and older men were to be sober and vigilant, disciplined. And as he wrapped up that section, here was the rationale at the end of chapter 2. Why did Jesus save us? We're told in verse 14 of Titus 2 that He gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. So He saved us to release us from bad deeds in our own self-righteousness and freeing us to be zealous of good deeds that you can only produce as a believer. Come back to the third chapter with me. Notice in verse 8, he says that this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. There's no limitation of this phrase to just Christian affairs. So a believer dare not stand aloof from the world. Not, uh, not, we're, we're in the world, but not of it. We're looking for every opportunity. It doesn't matter if it's the Sandy Hook duck race, which was, I think, 2.30 yesterday. Uh, or it doesn't matter if it's the, the town meeting or a tag sale or some act of kindness that opens the door for you to give a gospel track or a church flyer or to be engaged in a conversation, how can we make a segue offering a hope to a hopeless person in need of salvation? Are you ready for that? Every good deed, be ready. And by using the singular, when he he says about every He's stressing each individual good work, demanding a readiness to perform whatever might be called for, regardless of the situation. You don't know what's going to happen today. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So are you ready? Are you praying about those opportunities to exalt God rather than exalt my sinful, wicked flesh in that moment? That's why Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9.8 that they are to abound in every good work. And he writes to Timothy in a similar vein, 2 Timothy 2.21, to be prepared for every good work. And why do we sit under the ministry of the Word? 2 Timothy 3.17, so that we can be equipped for every good work. So the call to readiness. Notice fourthly, Titus, remind them of the familiar truth that they are to malign no one. That's the beginning of verse 2. To malign no one. In a nutshell, you better not slander or God's going to be slandered on account of you. Are we known as slanderers? That term, uh, blasphemine, to treat with contempt, to blaspheme. One commentator fleshes this out with some synonyms. He's saying that it means to revile, to heap curses upon, to speak reproachfully of. Christian, what's your speech? Is your tongue redeemed? Those who are quarrelsome and contentious with their neighbors, according to the good book, are poor citizens. Poor citizens and poor witnesses for Christ. 
We cannot speak evil or verbally abuse those who are created in God's image. This speaks of all men, redeemed and unredeemed. What, what holds you back in the moment that you want to give somebody a piece of your mind you can't afford to lose? In the moment you are considering your biblically processing this person is created in the image of God and to defame them is to defame the, image, the, the one whose image they bear. So it holds you back. You don't speak evil. Uh, James in James 3.9 when he talks about the usage of our tongue. Here's the quandary. He says we bless God with this tongue. And we curse men made in the likeness of God. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be true. Do not malign anyone. Fifthly, on his reminder list, make sure you remind the church to be peaceable and gentle. You know, when somebody's peaceable, they're not a fighter. They're not a put-up-the-dukes kind of thing, whether physically or verbally. They're not contentious. It was fun doing a little word study on gentle this week. Uh, gentle is a compound word, epi, meaning over, and ikos, meaning reasonable. If you are a gentle Christian, you're overly reasonable. That preposition intensifying the meaning. You're, you're forbearing, you're reasonable, you're fair. One uh, Greek linguist, he says, it denotes a humble, patient steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice. There's our submission again. Submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred and malice, trusting in God in spite of it all. Unquote. So in the moment where you're engaged in that intense moment of fellowship, ordinary people call that an argument. Are you trusting God to the person who is verbally assaulting you? Rather than spouting off and returning kind for kind, are you entrusting your deeds of kindness and gentle words to the sovereign one? The same apostle would write to the Philippians about this virtue. In Philippians 4, in verse number 5, he said, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Let that be characteristic. So that if somebody's got to have something to say about you, here's what they've got to say about you. You're gentle. And they're scratching, especially if it's an unbeliever, that they're scratching their head so that you can engage with them in a gospel conversation. Here's why I held my tongue. It's not retaliation. That's not to be characteristic of a Christian, but uh, um, gentleness. Peter appeals to gentleness in 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. You remember that, uh, you ever seen that cartoon where, I forget what little kid it is in the, in the newspaper cartoon, but uh, he, he did something wrong, his mother sends him to the corner, and the little caption, uh, his thought caption above his head may be, while I'm sitting down on the outside, I'm standing up on the inside. You might say, yeah, yeah I'm doing pretty good on this reminder list, I, I'm submissive, I'm obedient, there's the outward form of it all, but not the attitude. To bear that up. That, not that peaceability, this gentleness that adds great veracity to your witness. And then Paul closes the opening sentence with a little participial phrase here. He, he, he said you need to, to be obedient. You know, he says, be subject, be obedient, be ready for every good deed, malign nobody, be peaceable, be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Showing every consideration. Repeatedly and continually showing consideration. 
a world of unbelievers who hears the message of our Redeemer must see the redemption of a changed heart in humble and gentle attitudes which bears up under offense with patient submissiveness without any motive to, to revenge. This is what... You, know, you think about where Titus was being sent to the island of Crete where they're only known as being rebellious sorts. What's really going to stick out in their society is one who's showing every consideration. A believer stands out in this Cretan society, and so it does in 2015 as well. This is the reminder list of what is to gird the life, the, the actions, the attitudes of a saint of God. And then he gives the underpinning, and this we won't spend quite so much time on. These are some gospel truths that we rehearse regularly here. So this is the doctrinal foundation. And he reminds here simply two ways. Believer, be reminded of who you were and be reminded of your salvation. So let's think of it in those parallel, parallel ways. He, he starts with an interesting connection that we once shared something in common with unbelievers. It's so easy to dismiss pagan society without realizing we were part of it before God so kindly brought us out of it and gave us the faith to believe. We must remember who and what we were before the grace of God broke into our lives. We were once grouped among the lost, and we also operated from the same darkened mindset of those that we talk with. We once were, verse 3, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our time in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. And the list goes on. He sets out seven specific statements of exactly what we need regular reminders of how bad and how desperate we really were. We, like the unbelieving, first of all, we were foolish. That word means to be without understanding or thought. It is the opposite of being wise. Paul employed the word to describe the Galatians who were ready to depart from grace and return to works of the law. And he basically tell them, yeah, it's foolish. It's foolish. It also describes a money-hungry lust to become rich in 1 Timothy 6.9. If you have come this far by gospel grace, been so mercifully saved... If your heart has been illumined by the Holy Spirit to see and to understand and to cherish the truth of God, that you've abandoned your effort at self-righteous efforts and, and the sinful urges that used to tug at your soul, you weren't always that way and neither was I. We would do well to remember as we deal with unbelievers around us, we were them. And we are still no better than them, but we've been graced by God. We've got a different values set. We've got a different source of authority. We've got a different Lord. We're no longer Lord of our own lives. We're Lord to a different master. He says, beloved, remember how foolish you were, how foolish we were. We were also disobedient. We were disobedient to God. We were disobedient to parents. That's why his first admonition in verse number one was to obey government. It describes one who will be brought under the authority of an, uh, who will not be brought under authority of another. When you're talking about a disobedient soul, one who is impersuadable, one who is uncompliant. We used to also be deceived. Unbelievers are led astray. They're following false, false guides to life, false guides to eternity. And we once followed in tow. We were part of the blind leading the blind. And you notice how this too is written in the present tense. This is their current status as it was our current status. This is their habitual course of life. Ever stumbling down the path 
of false ideals living in a state of deception. And so what do we do? We engage in prayer that God would so mercifully save them too. We must in gospel humility admit we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived. Fourthly, we were enslaved. We were slaves. Abiding in bondage. No victory over our sin and ourselves. Paul uses the term in in several negative ways throughout the New Testament epistles. Uh, People can be enslaved to sin, Romans 6.6. They can be enslaved to the law, Romans 7.6. We can be enslaved to our appetites, Romans 16.18. We can be enslaved to idols, Galatians 4.8. We can be enslaved to weak and worthless elemental things, Galatians 4.9. And here in this particular text... Bondage to various lusts and pleasures, used frequently in the New Testament for uh, strong impulses arising from ungoverned sinful desires. When we think about pagan society, they're tied to the fallen created order various kinds of sly and crafty desires and some difficult to slay and they can't slay without the gospel. Enslaved to their own lusts and passions. Fifthly, he says, here's what our life used to look like. We, we were spending life in malice and envy. Malicious. Inwardly, we had a vicious disposition. It's just not, not nice to be around. No matter how externally moral we might have been, appeared to people inside. We were rebels against God. You notice how he says we were spending our time in malice and envy. They appear together here. They appear together in Romans 1 when Paul describes unregenerate humanity. Malicious, envying. And these final two on his list, he says we were, we were hateful and hating. Hateful and hating. The first term, hateful, you, you can take it in a passive sense of being hated. It's translated this way if you've got the NIV with you or the ESV. Or it can be taken in the active sense of being hateful like it is here in the New American Standard or the King James. Here's a good synonym. Loathsome. This is the real despicable me, as the Bible describes me, without Christ. Either way, being hated or being hateful paves the way for hating one another. Continual, regular habit of relationships. Their relationships are hateful. Parents, don't wonder why your unsaved kids treat each other the way they do. They have no ability to do a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love for each other which is selfless and sacrificial until they come to faith in Christ. It was our natural hatefulness which begot mutual hatred. That's where we were in our desperate condition. But, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. That we say hallelujah, right? He saved us. Rescued us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us. I need to bring the plane down for a landing. As you contemplate the gospel this afternoon, as you meditate on gospel grace in your life of the but God in your life if you've come to faith in Christ, make sure you remember your salvation. The fountain of your salvation, verse 4. Make sure you remember in, in verse 5 the basis of our salvation. It's not because I was so great and cuddly. and No, it's because of His mercy. Remember as well the spirit of our salvation. The spirit of your salvation. That's verses 5 and 6. And the hope of your salvation, verse 7. And finally in verse 8. He says, this is a trustworthy statement. What has been the resounding theme throughout the epistle? That we would be cautious, careful to engage in good deeds. 
Make sure we recognize that doctrine's got duty. We profess Christ. How do we work it out in our lives to show a pagan society? These are cautious instructions regarding our conduct and our attitude, specifically with regard to civil authority and generally to all people, in particular a world of unbelievers. We were once just as sinful and difficult to get along with. When we were such, God was kind. He was loving to humanity. He saved you, Christian. You've done no deeds of righteousness apart from Him simply because of His mercy. He did so through Christ by washing away the bondage of your sins and regenerating and renewing you by the Holy Spirit. And having declared you righteous in His sight by His grace, He made you heirs to have the hope of eternal life. And in that we rejoice. With these words of God's mercy, kindness, and love towards mankind, may you be motivated to perform good deeds towards sinful people that God might be kind enough to draw them to salvation having used the veracity of your testimony. Would you pray with me? Father, so much more to be said here. We look at the gospel at this church week in and week out and we ask you to help us live of its sufficiency because we not only recognize who we once were, but what, are we, what we are becoming through the gracious, transforming work of Your Spirit, using Your Word, in putting off anything that is ungodly, and putting on righteousness for the glory of Christ. Help us where we fail. Might Your Spirit make note in our minds this morning of areas that need to be brought into conformity to be a savior of Christ, and gospel freedom to a society who so desperately needs to see the work of your Spirit and the life of your redeemed. Use this church to that end. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.